a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Olga Olaker, speaking to you from Brussels. And I'm your co-host, Alyssa Jobson, also in Brussels. Today, we are talking about Europe and China. As China continues to expand its influence on the world stage, its relationship with the EU and its member states has become increasingly complicated. The US position has long been clear. China is a threat to the global order, as evidenced by its actions in the South China Sea, its assertions along its border with India, and its increasing use of military coercion vis-à-vis Taiwan. EU countries have seemed less certain of the inevitability of conflict with China and more interested in looking for cooperative ways to avoid it. But in recent years, China's more punitive foreign policy approach, including, for example, its decision to sanction European entities and individuals for the EU's imposition of sanctions on China for human rights abuses in Xinjiang, has led more member states to align with US perspectives on China catalyzing greater debate within the Union over how Europe should juggle both a competitive and a cooperative relationship with Beijing. Then there's China's potential role in the war in the centre of Europe. Only recently has China's President Xi Jinping spoken directly with the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, Beijing's substantial and growing trade with Moscow bilateral statements describing the relationship as without limits and the political cover it continues to provide the Kremlin indicate strategic alignment, if not actual alliance, between the two countries. But this also means that if any country has the capacity to influence Russia to reverse its policy choices and help bring peace to Europe, it's China. To talk about all this, we are excited to welcome Dr. Yanka Ortel. Yanka is currently the director of the Asia Program at the European Council on Foreign Relations, ECFR, a think tank focusing on European foreign and security policy based in Berlin. She has published widely on topics related to China's relations with Europe and the U.S., security in the Asia-Pacific region, and Chinese foreign policy. Yanka, welcome to War and Peace. Thank you so much for the invitation. Let's just start with uh, how you would describe EU and European interests in China, fears of China. You know, in a nutshell, how would you describe the way the EU now looks at China? I think this is one of my favorite questions at the moment, because you can give a million different answers on this, um, because it's the EU, obviously. You can always find all sorts of positions. Um, I think the best way of describing it at the moment is um, that you have to not look at the day-to-day headlines. If you look at the day-to-day headlines over the last five years, I've read literally every single headline. It's going great. It's going horribly, you know, trades up, trades down. Um, things are very complicated when you start looking at all member states and when you look at all the different domestic political dimensions of this. But if you step back from this kind of curve that goes up and down and up and down and up and down and it seems very confusing to outside observers, when you step back, you see a very linear trajectory, actually. And that is a relationship that goes from a very high point of relatively low attention 
but um, high kind of economic relationship, but also um, high value to both sides um, to down to a level of very high attention, but very low um, relations in general, very cold relations now, very skeptical relations. And I think this is, if you look at this kind of linear trajectory of from a high point of indifference, but happy <laughs> to a low point of high attention and wariness, um, you kind of describe where we have come to. Europe has not figured out exactly what its China policy looks like, but the kind of trend lines are very clear. And I think they couldn't have been clearer than um, they were in the in the speech that Ursula von der Leyen gave in late March in Brussels. I think that was a really good indicator of where the analysis is converging. What kind of China are we actually seeing? How much of a challenge has it become to Europe and the way Europe wants to see the world? And then, on the other hand, are the policy conclusions that you draw from that, because obviously just agreeing on the analysis doesn't mean that you draw the exact same policy conclusions against your relative domestic backgrounds that you have in each of the EU member states. So how does von der Leyen's view and the EU's view of relations with China tally with those of member states? Is there much unity? Are there particular areas of disagreement? Again, you can find different answers to that. Uh, so the um, degree of unity and where it matters is important and the kind of general trajectories. So as I said, generally on the analysis, there's a huge degree of convergence now across Europe. Um, there is this understanding that China is not a far away thing any longer, but it is actually a challenge on a day-to-day -day level for all European member states. But it has a different level of importance for each of the member states. If you want to very carefully group the countries, you could say that for Germany, it is of highest importance in terms of the economic relationship. For Eastern Europe, it was until like the mid 2010s, like 2015, 16, um, a big promise that they hope would come true for investments, for economic opportunities, for also making themselves a little bit less dependent on the Western European countries. And that promise just hasn't come through. So a lot of disappointment in Eastern Europe and then put the uh, war in Ukraine on top of that. And you have a very different, a potent mix of uh, hawkishness that arises in the East. And you very carefully group then the Northern European countries, you could say, from very high trade openness, huge interest in investments, etc., a large degree of skepticism now because of China's domestic developments, because of the way the Northern European countries were treated by Chinese diplomats. And then you have um, Southeastern European countries that are relatively indifferent still to the political um, dynamics, are less dependent in terms of the trade and economic relationship. So you have a range of different areas here. And I'm, this is already very kind of, you know, very broad strokes because you cannot really regionally group the countries um, if you wanted to. But what we are seeing is that around all of the important questions, when it came down to getting EU unity, for example, on sanctions vis-a-vis -vis Xinjiang, you actually had that unity, including Hungary. And that is important, I think, in terms of describing what we are seeing, because Sometimes there can be this kind of wild chatter, um, a bunch of crazy five-year-olds that Europe is. But when it matters, do they come together on these questions or not? And we have not seen a huge degree of disunity on important questions so far. We've seen a lot of difference in the way the narrative and the kind of the way the presentations are and the way the you know travel is conducted and the way companies are welcomed. But when it comes to 
the question of hardening investment screening, of the question of um, kind of um, giving an answer to foreign subsidies and the question of how does the European market deal with that when it comes to um, countries being under the threat of economic coercion and whether Europe should uh, react jointly. Um, economic coercion from China, then you actually see a lot of unity. So I'm a bit careful in just saying, you know, flat out, oh, there's no unity. It's so easy to say there's no unity on a question in Europe. Um, I think there is a, uh, there is a heart, there's a core, um, that is relatively united and is relatively strong at the moment. Um, and, um, I think that has been surprising to many that have been observing EU-China relations for 15 years. And does China know what its EU policy is? I mean, China has a lot of European policies, right? It makes a lot more sense to deal with the individual states separately. That's a lot easier and comparatively, you're just much bigger. Um, and that's just, you know, that makes a lot of sense from the Chinese perspective to pick that apart as much as possible. But then there's a lot of initiatives that just haven't come off that well. So if you think about the magical 16 plus one, um, just, you know, a couple of years ago, that was still a, a format that other Europeans were worried about Eastern, it's a format of Central Eastern European countries plus, um, five Western Balkan states, um, EU accession candidates, um, where you also blur the lines of what Europe, EU, what that is and how China deals with that and very deliberately trying to make incentives and give weight to a region that is also, um, had been searching for its sort of role in Europe and its voice in Europe. And now it's, um, it's a very empty framework. We're down to 14. We were up to 17 briefly with Greece joining. Now we're down to 14. The Baltics have left the forum. Um, the Czech, um, po- Czech politicians have just said, you know, it's a, it's a useless, basically spineless, uh, meaningless format. Now you don't actually need it anymore. Um, no one will actively destroy it, but it's not being used as a political form of political influence anymore. Um, it's just kind of there as a format, but um, it is not very useful in terms of exerting influence anymore. So I think we have seen different approaches from the Chinese side to different players. Um, we have seen different charm offensives to different countries. Um, lots of initiatives when it comes to different memoranda of understanding that were signed around the Belt and Road Initiative, um, China's large kind of infrastructure and influence campaign. Um, but None of this has really paid off in terms of really dividing Europe along very clear cut lines. But you have to deal with the problem from the Chinese side that we just constantly have elections and that constantly all of these governments are changing. And that's incredibly annoying to deal with because you can have a very pro-Chinese president in a country like the Czech Republic and then boom, you have a four star NATO general, you know, and then that's really different from the look. And so that's really annoying to handle. Um, and that means, means you have to kind of adjust your policies all the time. And even the consistency with the Merkel administration that was there for 16 years, which was obviously fantastic to deal with because you always have the same person, even that is gone. And now you have to adjust to a new government that has all of these people in there that are the Greens and that are problematic and all the liberals that want to go to Taiwan. So, I mean, just um, I think understanding a little bit that for China, Europe is really not an easy um, entity to deal with. As for most of the world, I guess it's true as well. (laughs) (laughs) Others have complained. (laughs) So China's had some high profile visits from European leaders recently. First, Olaf Scholz, uh, then the Spanish prime minister. Um, and most recently, uh, the visit from French president Emmanuel Macron and the EU commission president Ursula von der Leyen. What are these leaders looking to accomplish in these 
visits? So I think, first of all, it's really important to underscore a little bit why we're seeing that flurry of visits. This is obviously COVID-related. We had a near breakdown of all diplomatic contacts for almost three years. This was There's a lot of backed-up visits that never happened. So you would have seen a different kind of stretching out of these visits had there not been the pandemic situation. I think that's one thing that's really important to point out. The second thing is that We've had a number of changes, for example, then also in the leadership in Germany. So for Olaf Scholz, it was the first opportunity to go as the German chancellor to China, which was something that was very important. It is the bilaterally largest in, um, trading partner for Germany. This is an important political relationship. And I think it's fair enough to say that diplomacy works as something that is done in like interpersonal relationships as well. It, it works better in person than it does on the screen. And there was a lot of Kind of, there were a lot of questions on the table. What are we actually seeing here? What is the relationship like? What is Xi Jinping thinking? Um, and to get a better feel for this, all of these visits actually played a role and were important in themselves. And I think it's fair enough if European leaders want to make, want to enter into a direct conversation. So I think just having these visits in general going on now is something that is not problematic. It is very important that there is a degree of coordination, which we could see. Um, there was a clear message coordination when it came to Ukraine, for example, from Sanchez all the way to Macron. I think that was really important. Um, and then there will always be differences in the approaches. And the Macron visit was obviously the most controversial one because it had the most pomp and circumstance. It was actually a relatively normal state visit um, in terms of the program that was conducted. It looked very much like a Merkel state visit in 2018-19. You know, these are the kind of pre-pandemic um, classic big state state visits um, that would be conducted. I think um, taking Ursula von der Leyen along for that trip was quite the gesture um, because it allowed FaceTime for the European Union at a level that they normally wouldn't get. Um, and it allowed to have a slightly more kind of coordinated messaging process, particularly after this speech. And the speech was very straightforward in its assessment um, of China, very clearly calling out the challenges that China poses, very clearly talking about de-risking of the relationship, very clearly talking about you know control and power and what kind of China we're seeing right now and that the times of reform and opening are up. And so all of these things that were out there um, that she'd said just weeks before, or it's days before she went, literally, um, that were then communicated as well to the Chinese president in the presence of the French president. Um, I think it's been underrated a little bit how important that is um, and how much of a joint signal that gives and how confusing it can also be um, to Beijing to get all of those messages simultaneously, because that is also a an asset, in a way, of European diplomacy, that we can send slightly different nuanced messages um, and not have just one voice that comes there. I think sometimes there's, it's overrated to say, you know, we all have to say one thing and speak with one voice. Um, sometimes we can just give different subtle nuances and therefore try to get different responses um, from the Chinese government. And that was attempted. the United States, um, the U.S. I mean, you describe a Europe that is moving in a more critical direction of China. 
But hawkish in the sense that the U.S. is hawkish, where it actually seems to be constantly preparing for military conflict, I'm not sure it's quite where European Union countries are. Do you see a tension in this relationship uh, with the U.S. trying to push and the EU trying to push back? Uh, how do you, how would you describe these dynamics? So first of all, I think that describing the trends in Europe is a good way of like two steps forwards, one step back. Because you see, it's like a, it's, it's this constant readjustment and trying to figure out and seeing what the reactions are. So it's not as straightforward in one direction. I think that's important to, to underscore. Um, then the second effect that we have is obviously that with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we're seeing very different economic challenges in Europe that have, um, put all of the other questions back in the kind of, oh, hang on. Can we do these things right now? Because we're in a crunch here. How do we sequence this? How do we deal with this? Um, the question of de-risking from China, do we do it now or do we do it a little bit later just so that we are, we don't shoot ourselves in the foot at, you know, while going at? And I think all of these deliberations, um, in a way are going on in the U.S. as well. Um, so I think what we are seeing is, um, both in the U.S. and in Europe, a number of leaders trying to come to terms with the challenges that China poses on international markets with coming to terms to the idea of the idea that the Chinese market will continue to be um, or will be closed to a lot of the businesses that are um, that are interested in making business there. Um, and therefore, just kind of readjusting to this new reality of what kind of China we're seeing and the kind of China that that works together with Russia um, and that has a clear understanding of the kind of global order it wants to see. I think if you look at the speeches by Ursula von der Leyen, Jake Sullivan's speech, Janet Yellen's speech, there's a huge amount of overlap in the analysis. There's a huge referencing as well on both sides. I mean, Jake Sullivan was now talking in his speech about de-risking. I thought that was the European term that they had used because they didn't want to say decoupling, which the U.S. was using. They were trying to put some kind of space between themselves and the, and the U.S. in the end. You know, it all comes down to this kind of a, a response to what is happening and what the Chinese government has been pushing forward, which is, you know, trying to make the world more dependent on China while becoming less dependent on the world. And this, these are all reactions to that as well in terms of what kind of global trading order we will see. Now, there is another strand in the U.S., and that is obviously the national security strand. And that is a different one from the kind of trade and economic strand that we're seeing um, in the sense that the U.S. is, of course, actively dealing with China as a clear security challenge to its security interests in the Indo-Pacific and in terms of kind of global security. The Europeans are not there yet in terms of seeing China as a direct security threat. Um, as an economic security threat, yes. As a cybersecurity threat, yes. But as a threat to their national security, not really. And that does lead to different kind of policy prescriptions that you have, and it leads to different spaces that you want to leave open for conversations. But I do think that the, um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and China's support for Moscow has really changed that in particularly in the Baltic states and in a lot of Eastern European countries. You do get a different kind of perception of that when you're closer to the border than you are when you're sitting in Spain or in Portugal. And that's the big worry, that this kind of trend of convergence of positions in Europe could be reversed because the interests are falling apart because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I guess the question I have, you kind of, you said this um, that China has a clear view of the global order it wants. What is that? 
the China's view of the global order. It is an order that doesn't have the U.S. at its center, but it has China at the center. Um, there are a number of kind of statements that you can read from um, from the Chinese government where Xi Jinping is very clear about kind of rejigging the centers of gravity for the international order, um, making sure that you push back against Western dominance and that you recreate the rules in a way that is conducive to China's interests. Um, there are kind of speeches where you can read about China's wanting to, um, that the world is in need for new leadership um, and is talking about China and Russia in that role, is trying to rethink um, what multipolarity with a very strong Chinese pole could look like um, and where China can serve um, as a source of wisdom that is often referred to as a sort of um, inspiration as a development model. So you have the Global Security Initiative, the Global Development Initiative, and the Global Civilization Initiative, which sort of form a package of global, <laughs> that's in the name, um, kind of ideas that Xi Jinping and his administration has been putting out and forward as basically China's offer to the world in uh, the different areas. Now, this is all very... Um, it's fluffy in the words. Um, there's a lot of space for interpretation. And that's good if you want to get on board a number of very different countries that have very different positions. If they can use your initiatives that are very vague in their framing, but they sound nice and they sound like they are pushing back against something that is not in your interest, a US-led global order that may have not served your interests so well if you're a country of the global south in the developing country, then you are you know, potentially saying, yeah, these things need to change. And then it allows you to sort of project your own preferences into this framework because it's so wobbly. Um, and that makes it, for the time being, relatively attractive. I think it will be very different when there is an actual moment in which China would have to be more specific about what that actually means. And when it comes to actual choices around that, um, that also then leads to alienating countries. And that also leads to then making others mad. So far, they can just be very friendly and fluffy in the rhetoric, not in the actions. <laughs> So how would you describe then China's position on Russia's war against Ukraine? So um, I think we are looking at this sort of, it's a work in progress, right? So um, the Chinese government was clearly, when this wasn't going as planned, so a quick invasion that would then end, I mean, they were clearly not ready for a long-term protracted war. That wasn't what the planning was like in, in Beijing for um, what was going to happen. They were clear, I think, that something was going to happen, but that not that it would look like this. Um, there was a huge degree of uh, then carefulness and confusion for a few days in Beijing where you could not, see, the messaging wasn't quite right. And then it sort of swung in and it swung in behind Russia. Um, and it was, I think, the most frustrating moment for most of the European countries, because the 4th of February statement that we saw um, just before um, the invasion started was one full of, you know, China signing on to Russia's suggestions for a European security order, including full demilitarization of um, you know, Baltic states and Poland and you know, every form of Warsaw Pact state. Um, this was quite something. And the No Limits Partnership. And um, it was clearly reassuring on both sides, you know, China's interest over Taiwan, Russia's interest in Europe. It, was, it had rhetoric in there on kind of pushing back against NATO expansionism. It was clearer in its wording than anything you'd ever read before when it comes to the European security order. So it was then, but it wasn't really that much. There was not a lot of publicity around it in Europe. It was a bit like, oh yeah, well, okay, that's what they say. They don't actually mean it that way. 
And then there was the invasion. And obviously then there was a lot of European countries that were were thinking, well, certainly this is not what China wants. This is not one of my favorite sentences. This cannot be in China's interest. Um, we often get China's interests wrong and we often don't get their priorities right. And so it seemed to many, I think, that China would clearly step back now very quickly and would kind of drop Russia and would use its influence on Russia to stop this as quickly as possible. Well, it didn't for a year. Um, quite the opposite. It actually you know, reassured um, the Russian leadership. It reassured um, them diplomatically. It reassured them through continued military engagements together, joint operations, joint training, joint exercises. Um, we saw not only the foreign minister going, but also the defense minister going for a number of days. And then Xi Jinping, first visit after he's been reinstated for his time as the president of China, goes to Russia for a long state visit. Everything's normal. You know, everything's great between the two. And I think this realization that what is in China's interest, really, um, and the fact that um, there is a clear picking of sides um, and that China will support Russia in its interests in this war is something that a lot of Europeans um, have had a hard time digesting and still trying to come to terms with. Um, does China have real leverage over Russia to change its incentives with regard to war. Obviously, it's, you know, providing, as you said, a lot of military support, a lot of economic support, a lot of diplomatic and political support. Uh, but does it have real leverage? And if so, what would it take for China to use that leverage? And is there anything Europeans could do to sort of, you know, move that along a bit? Yeah, I think the, the way in which Europeans and to a degree, Americans now recently seem to be convinced that there is a way that um, China has leverage. Um, I think I find that slightly bit more questionable. Um, I don't think that this is how the relationship between those two countries works. I find the confidence with which a lot of European observers are saying, well, of course, the only country that could exert its leverage on Russia is China. I don't find it, of course, at all. I find it very difficult for the Chinese government to exert leverage over Putin um, because of the friendship that is there, because of China's own security situation, because the fact that China is strong and, um, and Russia is weak right now is really good for Chinese security. But you share a huge land border. And when you have other interests that are kind of where it's good to have Russia on your side and to know that they owe you one all the time. And so I think this is something where the Chinese government will be incredibly carefully walking a very fine line between continued support for Russia, making sure that there is at least a face-saving solution for the Russian side, um, and that this is not a huge victory for a Western coalition of transatlantic unity, for support for liberal democracies, and a kind of tough and brave democratic country that is defending its values against a big authoritarian state. Because that's a narrative that doesn't really go down super well in Beijing. Um, so I think the question of having a war that sort of lingers on for a while is not something that is completely against Chinese priorities. It's actually not so bad because the damage for China is limited. They get good oil and gas deals at the moment, um, export much more to Russia, preferential conditions. Um, this is not kind of giving something free to the Russians, but this is like a really good business opportunity for Chinese companies as well. They have to walk a really tight rope when it comes to sanctions. Um, and they have been kind of compliant with that because they're going to make sure that they're not going to shoot in their own foot around this. But so far, Russia didn't need much more support. But 
I think what we've seen over the last few weeks is that this notion of neutrality to the outside world and actual kind of um, closeness with Moscow doesn't work so well anymore. So there's pushing from other countries saying, hey, hang on. Um, so what are you doing and contributing to peace? So we're seeing not only the 12 point so-called peace plan, but also these initiatives now, the call with Zelensky. So to keep the appearance of neutrality up. And I think the approach that the US and Europe are taking at the moment of basically saying, okay, so this is, you're going to help now. Great. Let's get you on board for this. I think that's a good approach. It's saying you have to call this out and say, either you're in it and you're helping now, and then let's see what you can do and then use your influence in whatever form you can. Um, and that puts Beijing in a slightly awkward position, but just saying, oh, it will not work anyway. is not actually pushing them very hard. Now I am very skeptical whether we will see any progress in that regard. Um, but I think, China will have a role in whatever outcome in the end we will see. China was Ukraine's largest trading partner before the war. It likely is going to be that after the war. Chinese companies can play a huge role in reconstruction efforts, in the infrastructure reconstruction. So for a post-war role, there is a role. And then I'm sure that the Chinese government is seeking some sort of role once the parties are at the negotiation table um, to make sure that kind of its global influence here is also felt in this conflict. I'm just trying to think, I mean, the you described a post-war world in which certain relationships are rebuilt. What does that mean, though, for the EU and China uh, and the EU, China and the US and pressure on human rights issues? I mean, none of that goes away. Does it change, right? If you do if the Ukraine war... I wave my magic wand and the Ukraine war ends, right? We keep talking about the end of this war. And I think, as you said, there's there are a lot of countries that don't mind a long war. Uh, those countries include not just China, but also Russia. So, you know, I don't think you can discount that possibility. But okay, let's, let's discount that possibility. You still have a China that wants a different global order than the US does, than the EU does. You still have the human rights violations. So... How does that work? China rebuilds its trade with Ukraine and what happens with Europe? I think it doesn't change anything fundamentally about the China-Europe relationship, um, whatever the outcome of the war. I think it would change dramatically if we were to see a situation in which China would get more actively involved on the Russian side as well. Um, if we see a Putin losing, uh, Putin losing power, losing its grip on power. Um, and that is where I think the tightrope for the Chinese side, um, for the Chinese government is particularly pronounced. It is how much are you willing to do to stabilize Putin, where you have committed to a no limits partnership with this regime, how much are you willing to actually put on the table on that side? Because that would permanently damage relations with Europeans. Europeans have been relatively forgiving about whatever China has been doing, um, particularly domestically, um, but also internationally. I mean, if we think about kind of 1989, um, the full reestablishment of relations, I think was in 1991, then between Europe and China, even after grave, um, violations of human rights in China, um, there wasn't a particularly long time of um, economic coldness between the two sides. The promise uh, was always too good. But we have now a, a combined trajectory. That is, the promise of the Chinese market isn't so promising anymore because of the policies that the Chinese government is pursuing. The economic relationship is cooling down in many ways. Um, and it is more of a challenge now to international companies 
vis-a-vis um, Chinese companies and global markets. So we have less of an importance of the economic relationship or less of a, of a clear trajectory of that economic relationship. And then at the same time, we have the cooling of um, the diplomatic relations. We have China being um, the Chinese government being just as forceful domestically when it comes to Hong Kong, when it comes to Xinjiang, when it comes to threatening Taiwan. Um, so I think we're in a, in a situation now where the long-term trajectory of the China-Europe relationship is hopefully one that has a floor under it and that is cooler but stable, um, but where a a much more kind of uh, downward spiral is still thinkable. And this is, will very much depend on the outcome and the kind of the question of transatlantic alignment then in that regard will depend very much on the election outcome in 2024. Um, if we see another four years of the Biden administration, I expect a lot more transatlantic alignment on China questions because there's just a huge overlap in terms of interest and we can see that. But if there's a Republican administration, um, one that is more Europe um, averse, then I think we can see um, then, then you sort of have a remixing and reshuffling of the cards pretty quickly. Um, and that will have an influence on the China relationship as well. And I think it's really hard to predict right now how this will come out. So very informative, uh, not terribly reassuring, you know, lot, lots of things that remain to be seen. Uh, Yunka, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. You're very welcome. Thank you. To read more from Yanka, you can follow her on Twitter at Ertel underscore Yanka. You can also find more of her work on ECFR's website, that's www.ecfr.eu. To read more of Crisis Group's work on China and Europe, check out our website, www.crisisgroup.org. And you should also follow Crisis Group and us on various social media platforms where Crisis Group is generally at Crisis Group. Elissa is at Elissa Jobson and I'm at Olya Olaker. We'd like to thank our producer, Alex Vygursky, and our coordinator, Heiko Schaub. But our biggest thanks, as always, goes out to you, our listeners. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. You can also leave us a a review wherever you get your podcasts. And to ensure that you don't miss an episode, don't forget to subscribe to War and Peace. That's if you haven't done already. You can find us on all the main podcast platforms. We are looking forward to chatting with you again in a couple of weeks. But until then, goodbye. Goodbye until next time. Bye.